Blog Talk Radio. Hello folks, it's memory time, Eastern Airlines memory time. Every week at this time we bring you memories of this great airline from the people who made it the great airline it was, still is, in the minds of its former employees. That's why we enjoy telling these stories every Monday night at 8 p.m. East Coast time. Harry Lindquist, a former Eastern pilot crew scheduler, and myself, Captain Neil Holland, enjoy telling these stories, stories from pilots in the open cockpit mail wing planes into the prop era, and finally into the jet age, hostesses in the first passenger-carrying aircraft to stewardesses in the great silver fleet of the DC-3s, Martin 404s, DC-4s, 6s, and 7s, and Lockheed Constellations. Finally, as flight attendants in the prop jet Lockheed Electras, the Boeing 720s, 727, 757s, and 747s, to the Lockheed L-1011s. Douglas DC-8s, DC-10s, and the Airbus A300s. In many of these aircraft, Eastern was a launch customer. There were so many firsts for Eastern, it would be hard to tell in the length of these broadcasts. Our maintenance was second to none in the industry. Ditto for the advertising, marketing, and sales, and reservation system, Eastern excelled. Yes, you can say that Eastern was truly a pioneer of many advancements in the airline industry. The story hasn't been completed, as many of us known as the Eastern family haven't completed that story. We would like to hear from you, your story, and memories of Eastern. It's very easy to share them with our listeners on these broadcasts by simply writing them and sending, sending the stories to us at eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D at yahoo.com. We'll record your story and read on the air. Better yet, why not record your story in your own voice and we'll play it on a future broadcast. The recording must be done in the MP3 or WAV format. Send the the copy of the recording send to the above address and we'll have you on the air telling your memories of the greatest airline ever now let's hear what we have recorded for you this week this winter you need all the summer you can get Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. This next story comes to us from the book, The Wings of Man. It was written by Lou Palacio. Lou was with Eastern from 1959 to 1991. His first position was sales executive, and he later served as interline sales manager, director of sales Latin America, director of interline and government affairs, and director international marketing. 
After Eastern shut down, he worked for Iberia Airlines of Spain until 1994 as Vice President, Business Development. Between 94 and 201, he was Vice President, Sales and Service, Latin American Division for World Airways. The title of the article is Eastern's New Frontier, Starting Service in Latin America. My love affair with Eastern Airlines has many chapters. However, the one that I'm relating to you today had a strong relevance in the history of what once was a proud member of our country's thriving airline industry. On an afternoon in April 1982, after I landed at Miami International Airport on a Pan American flight from Paris, I was met at the airport by Jim Courtney, an Eastern Special Customer Services representative, who told me that I was summoned to report to our executive office for an important meeting next morning with George Lyall, my divisional vice president. The next day, having to cut my vacation time short, I reported to Building 16, named the Ivory Tower, to join a number of key employees from other divisions. Mr. Lyle told us that Colonel Frank Borman, our president and CEO, had called him the day before to inform him that Eastern had acquired the Latin American routes that were formerly served by Braniff International Airways and that Lyle was to put together an employee task group to bring about the merger of the Braniff routes and employees in Latin America into the Eastern fold. The task group included every phase of the airline operation properties and facilities, flight ops, legal, marketing and sales, accounting and finance, catering, human resources, flight attendants, maintenance and ground support, advertising, corporate presentations, and many others. My assignment was to become the general coordinator of the marketing and sales function, reporting directly to George Lyle. Until that day, I had worked as the manager of interline sales at the Miami District Sales Office, a job I adored, and now all of a sudden I was being launched into the big time as a resident of the Ivory Tower and an uncharted assignment. Like any new and unexpected experience, I had mixed feelings as to where the new job would take me. However, as a veteran of the airline I loved, I threw myself full force into the assignment. The first big surprise came when I was asked by Dr. Wayne Yeoman, Eastern Senior Vice President Finance, to make a presentation to our lenders on the subject of what Latin America meant to the financial future of the company and that I had a week to prepare before the lenders meeting at the Sheraton Riverhouse Hotel in Miami. I had never before had to make a presentation to such an important group of people and I felt like I was being thrown in the middle of the ocean with no life jacket and had to swim among the sharks in order to survive. George Lyle was in a, on an extended tour of the Brenda facilities and sales office in Latin America, hence the reason for my assignment. The night before the lenders meeting, I was asked to make a dry run to Dr. Yeoman and other finance department executives at Eastern's Auditorium in Building 16. To say that I was nervous would be to put it mildly. I had written a script based on what I was told was important to the lenders and had tried to be sophisticated in my use of language. When I finished the presentation, their faces told me it was a disaster. I thought that I would not be allowed to go through with it. Dr. Yeoman, who was always a fine and sensitive gentleman, simply came over with a resigned expression on his face, put his arm on my shoulder, and said, Well, Lou, do the best you can. The next morning, I joined Dr. Yeoman, the other Eastern Senior Vice Presidents, and Frank Borman. A few mo moments before my presentation, I approached Dr. Yeoman, and told him that I was going to forget the suggested script and points presentation and that I would do it my way. With a forlorn look on his face, Dr. Yeoman said, Lou, do whatever you feel is right and may God help us. I will never forget the moment I was introduced to the lenders and took over the podium to begin my presentation, which I felt would prove to be my last day of employment at Eastern. Looking at Frank Borman, Dr. Ehrlich, Dr. Yeoman, Russ Ray, and the rest of Eastern's senior management, I began. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, Colonel Borman and the distinguished members of Eastern Airlines Senior Management. It's not every day that I make a presentation to such an elite group. So I'll begin by warning you that if you hear a name, if you hear or feel a tremor, fear not, for it is not an earthquake. It is simply my knees and I cannot keep from shaking. That impromptu statement not only got me a laugh, but served to relax me. Then I proceeded to talk about the importance of Eastern's new service in Latin America and the positive financial impact that it would have to our company's bottom line. 
I told them that fares to Latin America carried substantial yields because the routes that we were starting were regulated and based on bilateral agreements with each of the countries and the United States. I talked about the variety of attractions that each country had to offer and how we were going to increase tourism to each of them from the U.S. cities on our network. Rather than reading from a piece of paper, I spoke from the heart, and when I finished with a positive statement, Latin America, Eastern Airlines, newly found gold mine, I received an unexpected standing ovation from the audience. Colonel Borman then came over to tell me that I was the first Eastern person to enjoy such an accolade from the lenders. From that day on, empowered by renewed self-confidence and resolve to meet the challenge head-on, I began the task of meeting and merging the former Braniff employees into the Eastern family, a job that was made easy by the high quality of the people we inherited. Many remain great friends of mine. In the years that followed the lenders' meeting, I traveled to all the new countries on our network, making theater-style corporate audiovisual presentations complete with live music and a cast of Disney characters. Together with George Lyall, I was moved to the top floor of Building 16 next to Colonel Frank Borman's office and eventually became the Director of Sales for the region. Latin America became a true money-making operation for Eastern and an asset that was sold at substantial profit to American Airlines when it was evident that our days as a viable company were coming to an end. Many experiences and rewarding moments took place during my tenure at Eastern but I also experienced one of the saddest moments of my life when I was appointed to coordinate the transfer of our Latin America assets to American Airlines. For me, the end of Eastern represented my second exile and was a heartbreaking experience. Eastern was nothing more than an outstanding group of people who at one time or another were united by a common bond of friendship, hard work, and pride of the airline that was founded by a true American legend, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Like the other great airlines of our time, Pan Am, TWA, Braniff, and National, Eastern will always live in my heart and memory as a place where the greatest generation of airline people work for an industry that no longer exists. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Oh, the stories our airline stars in the sky, our flight attendants, could tell if we could only have the space and time to tell them. We do have the media to share these wonderful and sometimes frightening memories. It's called Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. One such story is told in the book Wings of Man. It is told by Flight Attendant Ambassador, as I call them, Carol Rodenbach. The title of Carol's story is simply A Job in the Sky. I really wasn't looking for a job in the sky. However, I was blessed by falling into a career and life-changing events, which I attribute to who I am today. In 1968, I never dreamed of becoming a stewardess because all those that I saw were so beautiful with grace and charm. They were looked upon like models, or perhaps some as movie stars. The requirements were very different than what we see today. You had to be a certain height, weight, look like the all-American girl, and be single. For the young ladies in the sky known as stewardesses, it was usually a short-lived job. Many had to resign if they had any thoughts of marriages. In 1969, the rules changed, and finally, we were allowed to marry without resigning. Before the change, I would say the average time spent as a stewardess was one to three years. If you made it to a third anniversary, you were really senior. If you made it to five years, you were married to the job. I certainly didn't think I fell into that latter category. Little did I know Eastern Airlines would open doors 
and my dreams of travel to anywhere in the world began to come true. I was hired in Los Angeles. Everyone remembers the person who hired them, and in my case, it was Lou Devane. He was one of the recruiters and in-flight supervisor in Miami. Eastern didn't even fly further west than St. Louis, so I honestly had never previously heard of the airline. First, there was five weeks of Winnie Gilbert's training school at the Miami Springs Villa. It was like joining the military, I thought. The first week, we were all groomed by specialists for hair, nails, and makeup. We had to learn how to sit, walk, and talk. Although I didn't smoke, I remember those who did had to know how to light a cigarette correctly and never smoke unless they were seated. You didn't know where you were going you were going to be based until the fourth week of training, and that is when I learned about age and seniority. I wanted New York, but as one of the youngest in the class, I ended up in Miami. I was very shy, but all that changed all that changed with life as a stewardess. Personally, I felt as if I was welcoming each passenger as guest in my home. And I loved chatting about where they were going, what they did, and if there was anything I could do to make their flight more comfortable. When you were new, you were on reserve, which meant you didn't have a regular schedule. I never knew where I was going until I was called by crew scheduling. And most of the time, the scheduler knew only the name of the senior stewardess. Unlike today, there were no pagers or cellular phones. So we spent hours and even days waiting by the telephone for a call. I love the excitement of meeting new crews and going to different places, which with my lowly seniority, I would never have been able to go unless on a vacation. On research, you never knew much except when you had to report or check in with crew scheduling. Then off you went to your gate or briefing room. Every day was an adventure, and no two days were ever the same. In the 1970s, we started to hire male cabin crews, and this led to the generic term flight attendant. Another change was that stewardesses could now take maternity leave, then continue their career after they had children. Previously, they had to resign on becoming pregnant. For many, it was good news, but if you were very junior, it meant you you would be on reserve longer, up to 10 years at some bases, because we did not lose seniority. That kept many of us on the Miami to New York flights for quite a long time. I didn't mind because I was from California and amazed at all the things I could do in New York. Broadway plays, attending taping of television, daytime soap operas, and great restaurants. In those days, we had to find our own hotels, and the company allowed us a certain amount of our expenses. We didn't make much money, so we relied on crew meals and hoped to find rooms within our budget. For a layover up to 24 hours, we received only $10.40. Double that amount if more than 24 hours. It was it was difficult to find accommodations in New York. So we stayed in some of the cheapest hotels we could find and at least two to four in a room. One bathroom for four young ladies preparing for work was always fun. In 1971, I was one of the instructors selected to be a part of the certification team of the L-1011 in Palmdale, California. Eastern was one of the top three U.S. airlines for its crew training, and I spent the next year in Miami instructing crews from all our L-1011 bases. December 29, 1972 would be another changing point in my career when Eastern Flight 401 crashed in the Everglades, approximately 20 miles west of Miami. We all felt the sadness and grief of that accident. 
even if it didn't directly affect our lives, I will never forget that night and the 82 hours of work telexing survivors' names to New York and making stops at the five hospitals. In 2009, I began another adventure, but this time it would be a little more challenging, although still with the name Eastern Airlines. It was a bigger challenge than I thought to take a 1958 Douglas DC-7B and have it certificated to meet current safety regulations. This was an aircraft that Eastern did actually fly, but in 1958, there were no inflatable slides. Aircrafts were then fitted with canvas slides. All the same rules applied to perform a mini-evacuation, and I was really grateful for all those years at Eastern in training and flying the line, with FAA inspectors watching every move we passed on the first attempt. My father always said I had a Cinderella life because it appeared I looked like I was on vacation more than flying. We did work hard, but we didn't mind. It was without a doubt the work I loved the most, and I am so fortunate to have wonderful memories of all those years. An additional note, Carol Rodenbeck completed her in-flight training in December of 1968 and flew until 1991. During her career, she was based in Miami, 1968 to 70, Washington, D.C., from 70 to 71, and Atlanta, from 71 to 74, before returning to Miami, 74 through 91. Along the way, she flew all EAL aircraft types, her favorite to work being the L-1011 and the A-300. As a passenger, her favorite is the Boeing 757. She also served as the director of in-flight for the Historical Flight Foundation when the DC-7B was active. story comes to us from the book The Wings of Man and this story will be told in two parts. It was written by Captain Jim Blackburn who was an Eastern captain and flew uh, an Eastern DC-8 on a military airlift command flight. The article is simply entitled Tet. Eastern Airlines flew its first military aircraft command contract flight to the Vietnam War on July 1st, 1967 out of McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey. From July to October, we flew to Europe, mainly from Rhine-Main Air Base, Frankfurt, West Germany. There were other flights into Preswick, Scotland, RAF Mindenhall in Suffolk, England, Torreon Air Base near Madrid, Spain, and Naval Station Rota on the southern coast of Spain, among others. By the grace of God, fine adventures were had on layovers in Frankfurt, London, Madrid, Seville, and other exotic spots all while enjoying the top flight pay at Eastern. In October 1967, we shifted our operations to Pacific, flying troops into Vietnam from West U.S. West Coast bases. This was a bit different type of flying operation. The airlines and troops would normally continue across the Pacific to Vietnam after brief stops in Hawaii, Wake Island, refuel only, and Guam. Crews would lay over at each rest stop, except Wake, and pick up the next EAL flight coming through. 
Returning from Nam, we stopped at Clark Air Base in the Philippines as well. We normally had two to four day layovers. This story, taken from my flight logbook, is one of my more interesting flights to Vietnam. On January 30th, 1968, our flight crew, consisting of Captain J.J. Smith, myself as first officer, Mel Coughlin as second officer, and navigator Steve Colvis, plus six flight attendants, departed from Miami to Atlanta for an overnight layover. The following day, we continued deadheading to San Francisco. At SFO, Eastern provided a van to pick us up and take us to a motel in the Napa Valley, where we were able to see some of the beautiful California vineyards and sample a bit of their crop. On the next day, February the 1st, we were transported to Travis Air Force Base, where we picked up our airplane, a stretch Douglas DC-861, and 224 troops. Our flight of 5 hours and 51 minutes over the Pacific to Honolulu was routine, and we were looking forward to our two-day Waikiki Beach layover at the beautiful Ilakai Hotel. As usual, our ground rep met our flight, but this time had a special message for us. He said that our flight was canceled and another crew would not be taking our airplane further west. Our troops would be unloaded and we may be forced to remain in Honolulu for a few extra days. We almost said in unison, oh no, not extra days in Waikiki, what's the reason? Our rep informed us that there had been mass attacks in Vietnam called the Tet Offensive and several civilian air carriers had been hit with small arms fire. No more flights were allowed to depart from Vietnam until further notice. We vowed to tough it out in Waikiki no matter how long it took. After a full day off on February the 2nd, we were surprised to get the call to proceed west toward Vietnam the next morning. We asked if the battles were subsiding and were told, not that much, but there's no more room in Oahu for any more troops to be housed. All available spaces at Fort DeRussi, Schofield Barracks, and Pearl Harbor were taken and we had to move the troops out no matter what. That sounds like my old days in the Air Force, a calculated risk operation. They calculated and we risked. On February 3rd, we were again flying our same DC-8 westward from Honolulu's Ikham Air Force Base, Air Force Base with a brief fuel stop at Wake Island, then on to Anderson Air Force Base on Guam. One thing we noticed on the island were the signs that the government had erected saying, Guam is good. On Guam, Eastern provided the crews with three Australian hold-in station wagons, two for the flight attendants and one for the front-end crew. We usually stayed in modernized stilled houses near the Navy base. On the way there, we would often pick up a case of cold San Miguel beer to cool off with and get into the island mood. We had plenty of time to explore the sites on the island that had its first contact with Europeans when, purchased, when Portuguese navigator Ferdinand Magellan landed in 1521. While we didn't know it at the time, there were still several Japanese soldiers who had never surrendered, hiding out in the caves and the hills. Over the next two days, we drove around the island and visited the Navy's Top of the Mar Club, a Japanese Navy command post during World War II. A day later, on February 6, we flew the next eastern flight from Anderson, nonstop, to Buen Ha Air Base in Vietnam. Our Loran Sea Navigation Aid was not working well, and we were told in our departure briefing that the Shycoms were jamming the frequencies. Offshore, we noticed a large Soviet fishing trawler and were told that they radioed the NVA the departure times of all flights headed toward Vietnam. Large numbers of Boeing B-52 bombers were based at Anderson at the time. During the flight, our flight attendants would announce to the troops that we had real milk on board, but it was not consumed at our next stop. It would be given to the wounded at Clark Air Base Hospital. The hospital normally had only powdered milk on hand. Taking the hint, the GIs would not drink the milk. When we got in country near Saigon, we called Paris Control Radar for vectors to Benoit, which was still under the, an amber alert. Benoit was only 7 kilometers northeast of Saigon. Paris gave us descent to 5,000 feet. This altitude was supposed to be above most small arms fire. As we flew over the combat zone, it was like watching the 6 o'clock news, but live on scene. We did notice some smoke coming up from a wooded area ahead and to our right. Paris was asked if they had any airstrikes in our vicinity and we were told that things were changing too fast 
for any accurate advisories. Immediately thereafter, we noticed two Bell Cobra helicopter gunships passing beneath us, making a rocket attack. They were the source of the smoke in the woods. We thought that was cool because it would tend to keep Charlie down so they wouldn't bother us. About two minutes later, however, a big explosion went off on our left side. We didn't know what it was, but we didn't think that we'd been hit. Although we felt the concussion, we were already un unpressurized for landing, so couldn't tell if we had any holes in the airplane. For our 224 troops on board, it was a rather rude welcome to Vietnam. On final approach, we descended rapidly and landed without further incident. After our troops deplaned, we checked our bird for damage but couldn't find any. In base operations, we were told that the duty officer about what had happened on our approach, and he casually said, oh, that was more than likely a 122-millimeter rocket they fired at you. They set the timer to go off at about 5,000 feet, but the burst evidently was far enough away so they didn't put any shrapnel onto your plane. Later, we found out that more than 140 rockets had been fired into and around Benoit Air Base during the several weeks of the Tet Offensive. While we were on the ground, the Ops DO told us that if there was an attack while we were there, we had two options, take cover in the nearest bomb shelter or go to the airplane and take off. He said not to bother to call the tower for clearance because there would be no one there. As soon as the base came under attack, the tower operators bailed out by sliding down the chute and taking cover. The tower was always a prime target. On the ground, our DC-8 was cleaned by off-duty GIs. No locals were allowed near our airplane, and a jeep with two soldiers and a 50 caliber machine gun mounted on the back stood guard. Some of the female flight attendants had their photo taken with the guys on the guard jeep. The majority of flight attendants on these Vietnam flights were male, but we, did not, we had some sharp ladies with us too. We loaded 224 outbound troops and prepared to depart for Clark Air Base, located in northern Luzon and the Philippines. The troops called our airplane the Freedom Bird, and they all gave a cheer when we cleared the coastline on our two-hour and 20-minute flight. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Flight crews do meet some very interesting people. With flight attendants, it's a normal thing to have personalities among the common folk. However, flight deck crew members, not so often. On one occasion, I had a well-published Arthur on my jump seat from Miami, Atlanta, Phoenix, Tucson. None other than Robert Serling, brother of Rod Serling of Twilight Zone. Robert even wrote a few of the Twilight episodes, he told me. He was returning to his home in Tucson and asked if he could ride the jump seat as he had just completed flight attendant training in Miami with Eastern. Of course, he could, and he did. He wrote the book Stewardess and had completed the Eastern Airlines flight attendant training program just as he had checked out on the Boeing 727 Eastern Ground School and Simulator training program. Another one of his great books was The Left Seat. Most of the Eastern employees have read his book From the Captain to the Colonel, which included the following story within the book. Here is a story from that book. It's chapter 10, and it's titled, Will the Real Eddie Rickenbacker Please Stand Up? When Edward Vernon Rickenbacker ended his one-man rule of Eastern Airlines, he had compiled the most glittering record of an any airline chief in aviation history. 26 consecutive years of profit, the last 21 without a penny of government subsidy. He turned over to Malcolm McIntyre, a transportation giant serving 128 cities in 27 states over an area encompassing three-fourths of America's population and more than 80% of its industry.
the 228 great metal falcons of Eastern were flying 1,400 separate trips a day that added up to a half million miles every 24 hours on a route system linking every major city from New England and the Great Lakes to Florida and the Gulf Coast, from the Atlantic seaboard and Puerto Rico to St. Louis and mid-Texas. He placed in the hands of this reputable lawyer, but airline neophyte, the destinies of 18,000 men and women, most of whom had never known any other leader except the irascible, sentimental, strong-willed, benevolent, tar- benevolent tyrant they called, half affectionately and half fearfully, the captain. For a quarter of a century, he had branded his own image, not just on the airline, but on its people. To the point that out of terror of love or love, or more likely a combination of the two, some had been turned into ineffective imitators or equally ineffective psychophants. Like the fabled elephant being examined by blind men, Captain Eddie was many things to many people. The older employees, the ones who had been with him through so much adversity and struggle, looked at him and with sheer hero worship. The young Turks, the Lethriches, the Halliburtons, Simonses, and Sharps admired him without blinding themselves to his faults. And there were some executives so scared of him that they weakened their own judgment and ability. Jack Frost was one of them. Normally a tough, competent man himself, he assumed all the strength of Jell-O, if he thought EVR was going to disagree with him. Frank Sharp tells of a time when Frost was delivering a plea for fair cuts before a staff meeting. He listed all the compelling reasons for the reduction and the benefits to be, green, to be gained, then turned expectantly to Rickenbacker, who glared at him from under those bushy awnings called eyebrows. I think it's a lousy idea, the captain said testily. That's just what I was saying or about to say, Frost amended hurriedly. In the end, it wouldn't be a very good idea. Yet if EVR inspired fear in some, he inspired devotion in others. In man or woman who work for him can testify to his countless acts of kindness, most of them performed under pledges of secrecy and dire threats if the recipient let the word get out. To Sheppy, his secretary, he was not only a stern, demanding boss, but a considerate friend who treated her like a daughter or younger sister. Demanding, of course, was the universal adjective everyone applied to the captain. His refusal to recognize weekends as time for relaxation away from the office was a prime manifestation. If he worked on Saturdays, he expected every executive to work on Saturdays. This edict used to gall someone like Etheridge, who finally conceived the perfect crime. Lefty knew Captain Eddie had the habit of poking his head into various offices like a football coach making bed check just to see who was working and who wasn't. So each Friday night before going home, Lethridge would clutter his desk with papers to simulate a work-crowded atmosphere. The final touch was to leave a pair of old reading glasses on top of a pile of papers. The scene he had set was that of a busy man who had just left his office for a few minutes to go to the men's room. For months he worked this con on the captain until Rickenbacker got suspicious. He called Lefty in one day. What I want to know, Lethridge, he growled, is why the hell you're always in the john every Saturday morning? The contrite Lefty thought momentarily of such explanations as a terminally weak bladder, but decided to confess his dodge. Rickenbacker forgave him, but from then on, Lethridge came in on Saturdays. 
Lefty became one of EVR's favorites, although it was hard to tell sometimes because the captain rode his favorites harder than anyone else. In that category went Ambrose Shabbat, Vice President of Maintenance. Rickenbacker loved him and berated him proportionally. Charlie Simons remembers the days when Captain Eddie would hold court in Sid Shannon's office, deliberating various proposals brought forth by officers. Ambrose was a tough ex-Marine, Simons recounts, and the old man was really fond of him, although you never guess it. Every time Shabbat would try to spend money, the captain would tell him would tear him apart. I was assistant treasury then, treasurer, and I attended those meetings for six months without opening my mouth. Rickenbacker would say, what do you think of this idea? But nobody dared say what he really thought unless you knew what he thought. And then you'd agree with him. My God, if it was midnight and he'd say the sun was shining, he'd get total unanimity. On this one day, I recall so vividly, Shepard wanted to spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars to put in a system of work assignments. How long it would take to do certain maintenance jobs like change a carburetor or put in new plugs. For some reason, he didn't berate Shabbat with his usual gut reaction. Instead, he went around the room asking everyone's opinion with that, what do you think? And he finally got to me. I said, if I were you, I'd try it. You really think so? He asked. Yes, sir. He took out his pen and scrawled on Shabbat's memo, approved, EVR. You just couldn't predict what he'd do. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Maintenance and inspections of aircraft and engines back in 1933 differ a lot from maintenance and inspection of aircraft today, the jet aircraft. In the next three parts, we will state the operating policy of Eastern Air Transport back in July of 1933, as there were three articles written about Eastern and how they maintained their maintenance policy. It reads, Maintenance is one of the greatest factors in the safe operation of any airline, and it also constitutes one of the greatest expenses. Everything new must be thoroughly tried out before being given the company's stamp of approval for general use. We cannot afford to cheapen. We must find troubles before, not after they occur. We have established certain definite periods when items must be either overhauled or checked. This can best be described by the following outline. Frequent inspections. After every flight, the plane and engines are carefully examined, and every item noted on a 10-hour inspection report. After 25 hours, all the items listed on both the 10-hour and 25-hour inspection charts are thoroughly checked. Eastern Air Transport has a 50-hour inspection also, which is a very rigid one, and a 100-hour inspection, which is practically as severe and thorough as the annual inspection given all licensed plane, planes by the Department of Commerce. Thus, at the end of 100 flying hours, an airplane has undergone, undergone 10 10-hour inspections, 4 25-hour inspections, 2 50-hour inspections, and a 100-hour inspection. 
In addition to these, motor, mo these motors are given a running test before the plane is sent out on a run and are given other running tests before each takeoff. A comparison of the airplane and the automobile. Most people drive automobiles and though the uses of transport airplanes and private cars are entirely different, there nevertheless is a possible comparison between the maintenance of the two. To give an idea of the com completeness of Eastern Air Transport's test, let us outline this comparison. Automobile drivers seldom look for trouble until it is on them, regardless of whether time and facilities are available. On the other hand, Eastern Air Transport is constantly looking for possible trouble, so it may be found before it causes any delay or inconvenience. We can't pass the buck. Every part of the plane must be right or it can't go. Few automobile drivers would think of checking breaker points in the ignition system, draining the gasoline strainer, cleaning the air strainer, clicking, uh, checking all valves and other working parts for clearance tolerances, cleaning the strainer in the oil lines, testing the battery for gravity, and finally giving the engine a running test. It's too much trouble. And if the old bus has gas, oil, and water, why worry? Yet the items mentioned above are just a few of the things thoroughly inspected at the end of 25 flying hours on each of Eastern Air Transport's 50 airplanes. This is the first of a series of three articles uh, it, that is written by F.J. Shumali, Assistant to General Manager of Operating Policy of Eastern Air Transport. Philadelphia and Boston, and a unique new dining service is worth writing home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. Maintenance and inspections of aircraft and engines back in 1933 differ a lot from maintenance and inspection of aircraft today, the jet aircraft. Well, that's all we have for tonight. Harry and I hope you have enjoyed this little bit of Eastern history. Much has been written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines and by others in books, newspapers, magazines, and newsletters of the several Eastern organization publications. They're doing their part in keeping the legacy of a great airline alive and well, even after the more than 30 years since its last flight. Why not add your memories to our Monday night broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline as told by its people and friends? Just send us your story and we'll read it on a future broadcast. Better yet, record it and send to eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's eneil, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. It must be in a wake file or correction wave file format or an MP3 format. Your recording, recording will be part of the show in your own voice. Now until next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Harry Lindquist and Neil Holland hope you have a safe and beneficial week. So long, Eastern family.